and welcome to part nine of the Fincher Countdown from Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and today on the podcast, we review the final movie in our countdown, David Fincher's 2014 thriller, Gone Girl. And by we, I of course mean my co-hosts and two people who might be slightly uneasy about the long-term relationships they're currently in, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Guys, how's it going? I'm good, Scott. I wasn't expecting that little jab there, but uh, yeah. It wasn't a jab. I just mean this film, you know, asks a lot of questions about relationships. Does it? I guess we'll get into that later. I'm not sure it actually does, (laughs) but um, maybe that's just my personal experience with relationships. I haven't, I haven't experienced one where I've uh, been in, been in the, in the universe of, or whatever headspace Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike are in this film, but Hey, maybe five years from, or seven or eight years from now, however long their relationship is, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be asking similar questions, but I hope not. I guess it is more about marital relationships too, not, uh, not dating, but yeah. But uh, go ahead, Jay. How are you? Uh, Scott's not taking jokes I'm, well today. Um, so I'm good far. too. I'm I'm very uneasy about the tension I'm sensing right here. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I just love we're two minutes in and Scott's already just like disagreeing with my uh, my initial question of how's it going. Like, <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of disagreement uh, in in this conversation today. So he's just setting the tone. That's all it is. Also, Scott Shelton, if you do end up doing something really terrible, like they're going to point to this and we are going to be the ones that were told, why didn't we say anything after we heard you say something like maybe in five or seven years, I'll do something like this. So, yeah, I'm already befriending my dumb neighbors. So hopefully I don't listen to this podcast. Local idiots. Yeah, I believe as they're known. Um, But all right. Well, with that uh, tension filled uh, opening, I guess we should just get into the tension filled review uh as mentioned today we have the final film in our fincher series 2014's gone girl for the second film in a row fincher tackles a mega bestseller with gone girl adapted by author jillian flynn from her book of the same name the icy thriller is set in suburban missouri where a couple nick and amy dunn played by ben affleck and rosamund pike are in a seemingly idyllic marriage But on the couple's fifth wedding anniversary, Amy mysteriously disappears, leaving behind only the clues to an anniversary treasure hunt she planned for Nick. With Detective Rhonda Boney, played by Kim Dickens, hot on the trail of Amy, Nick tries to figure out for himself exactly what happened to his wife, and in doing so, unveils some dark secrets about the relationship they really had. That's all I'll say to avoid spoilers, but if you want to avoid spoilers, maybe come back to this episode after you've seen the film. Uh, before we get to our takes on this watch, I'd love to hear about the first experiences you guys had with Gone Girl. Jay, have you seen this film before? I have not. Okay. I've heard both both Scots talk about it at length um, without really getting too spoilery. But definitely, I feel like I had a sense of what you guys both felt about the movie. Things, certain things you might have liked and disliked. And that was pretty much all I had going into it. Uh Okay, well, Scott, I know you have seen it before. Um, so, yep. could you talk a little bit about your first experiences? With it? Yeah, did I talk about this the last time on the podcast, or was it off air when I talked about my I, first viewing experience? I think it was off air. I know what you're okay. going to say, but I think it was off air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, my first viewing experience, uh, sorry, I'm just laughing about the, thinking back to my first viewing experience, uh, was like I was on a date with someone, which was a hilarious movie to watch on a date, to be honest, in retrospect. Uh, I don't think either of us knew. Well, I don't think either of us had seen the movie at the time because it wasn't like we went, we didn't go to theaters or anything. But if it doesn't uh, have anything to say about relationships, then why was it a weird movie to see on a date? Oh, <laughs> stop it. I don't think, it has, <laughs> any, kidding, I don't think it has anything to say with relationships. I just think it portrays uh, a relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, uh, in you know, it, it is to avoid spoilers for now, 
there are some dark things that happen in the film. It is a David Fincher thriller. So you'd expect some dark things. That's not a surprise to anyone. And uh, in retrospect, it was a really weird movie to have watched on a date, I think, at least uh, especially on a date yeah. uh, earlier on in a relationship. So I think that it was a interesting viewing experience. There's so much more nuance and context to that date experience, which Jay's more privy to than you, Scott. But there's no reason to get into that now. Did you enjoy the film, though, the first time you watched it? Uh, the first half, yes. The second half, no. Okay. Um, yeah, so I uh, I read the book uh, before this film ever came out. Wasn't really a huge fan of it, to be honest. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about maybe why or why I feel a, a little bit differently about the film. Um, but I did read the book because it was, you know, it was the all the rage. Um, like, there's, I feel like now in the in the book world, like, there has become this, like, subset of, like, Reese Witherspoon, like, backed, like, you know, thrillers for like your, your suburban moms and stuff. And Gone Girl was kind of like the book that started this, this whole thing. And now, you know, you have one every single month now, it seems like if you follow books at all, but, um, but this one, I mean, th this did kind of start a revolution in the, in the, you know, world of, of thriller novels in the contemporary age. Um, and yeah, it's an attention grabbing story to be sure. And, but then I, when I saw the film, um, I did really enjoy it. Uh, and I was surprised about how much I enjoyed it again, because I didn't enjoy the book that much. Um, but I, you know, I, it is a film that I enjoyed a lot in the first watch. I have watched it several times, have felt pretty much the same way um, each time I, I've seen it. Um, and so I was looking forward to, to this, uh, to this rewatch. Um, but I want to go first to the person who uh, was experiencing their first watch with this film. And that is Jay. Jay, this Gone Girl's black-hearted tale of marital secrets gone awry have the vice grip thrills of Seven or Zodiac, or were you left wishing you could disappear just like Amy did? Well, huh, I think I think I actually Scott Shelton's uh, original take on it, the first half yes, second half no, I think actually is a pretty good way I'd describe this in that I think I was pretty pretty captured by the first half you know I, I thought it was building suspense really well I was you know really intrigued by what was happening like there was clearly again I'm kind of dancing around spoilers here like clearly there was something like very wrong about what we were seeing and we were probably being misled in some way and like you know I was I, I don't know I was, I was very much and also like the backstory again I didn't mind so much in the beginning um kind of you know how we're working with the two timelines like the one in the past I, again I, I was totally on board for uh, in the beginning of that and then the second half of the movie happened and it suddenly I, I found it a lot less easy to enjoy is what I'll say. Even though there were like definitely moments that I wanted to and parts of it that, you know, still, you know, like stir, I don't know, like, like a sense of suspense, right? Like that there's plenty that still happens where you're like, is so-and-so going to get away with this or not? Or is so-and-so going to get caught in this moment? Like what is, you know, and like that, that still worked, but it was harder to enjoy because it was overshadowed for me by, you know, certain elements of the second half, if that makes sense. All right, Scott, those, I'm sure, but, you know, just to, just to briefly summarize, you know, first half, definite yes. Second half was definitely tougher. Scott, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I, I think generally speaking, I, I do feel the same way. I think coming out of the second viewing of this film, I really feel like my impression from the first time was validated in in the way that I was experiencing or enjoying the film right like the and maybe even like amplified too the, the first half 
I don't know, it's like 60 to 70 minutes of the film right before there is a very big reveal in the middle of the movie. Before that, like this is like top A plus grade modern mystery filmmaking, like some of the best mo- like mystery filmmaking, in my opinion, that I can think of with uh, with like a close second or, or maybe up there with like prisoners with from Denny, Denny Villeneuve, which is one of my favorite modern mystery films. Um, and, and it's just like a really, really enjoyable, gripping, enthralling tale of like what has happened to this woman. Like, clearly, there's something very strange going on here. Exactly what Jay said. And the sort of etherealness of these like flashbacks and this diary writing that paints this idyllic picture definitely leaves you a little uneasy. And the build of that is fantastic. Like, I really can't compliment the first half of this movie enough. But then the second half, it's not just the, some of the stuff that we'll get into later in more detail that that Jay is talking about here that I find less enjoyable to watch. But the second half, ultimately, it chooses to drop its the mystery element of the movie. There is no mystery left in the film after a big reveal happens, basically. Like, sure, there are still surprises and twists and turns through the movie, but the, the whole mystery investigation nature is dropped for a different take uh, on the genre. And... I will say something like Knives Out, for example, I think took a similar approach of of dispelling part of its mystery trope last year. So it's not like this idea of throwing a bit of a curveball on, on a genre and switching things up a little bit doesn't work for me sometimes. But not not only do I have some problems with the direct like with some narrative decision making that the story makes and that Gillian Flynn makes in her novel. I mean, I've read the novel, but I assume it's not deviating too much from the novel in, in those respects. But I also like how engaged I was with this whole idea of a mystery movie, I, it loses me a little bit when it makes a decision to drop that element. It's not that it still isn't engaging at times. I'm still very engaged, but my enjoyment level, I think it drops significantly. And I think that's a combination of reasons that we can get into it in more detail. Yeah. Um, so I, I was telling Scott this the other night, um, but I actually, um, I have Scott to thank a little bit for for this time when I watched the film, because in the past, I've just watched the film and I thought this is a very enjoyable, very well made, well acted, you know, thriller. Um, haven't really thought too much about the film and if it's saying anything. Um, but I knew that Scott, I like I know what Scott's take is. I knew what his take was going to be coming into this. So I kind of wanted to watch the film a little bit closer to see how I personally felt. Um because the way that Scott, you know, what 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 Scott describes and what he's going to talk about later on, I'm sure, um, you know, is is troubling if if I were to watch it and interpret it the same way. Um, but I'm not sure that I do quite interpret it the same way. Um, and again, we're going to get into more detail with that a little bit later. But um, I think that um, this movie now now that I've watched it this time. What's so fascinating to me about this movie is that it is kind of a movie about myth making, in my opinion. There are a lot of myths being made throughout the film, whether it is the amazing Amy novels that Amy's parents write, in which there is this idealized version of her that she can never really measure up to, whether it is the the uh, the media and the the story that they create and spin out of control um, once this whole disappearance uh, starts happening. And, you know, most importantly, maybe there is this whole myth about, uh, again, the the reveal that we get in the middle of the film about who Amy actually is, right? The whole thing becomes uh, a a myth in in some sense. Like David Fincher has called the second half of this movie like an absurdist comedy. 
And I kind of like understand what he means because the behavior that she in, uh, undergoes in the second half of this film is so ridiculous and absurd and unrealistic um, that uh, you, you almost have to ask why, why did the film take this direction when, as you all have pointed out, like the first half of the film, it feels very realistic, like very like this is how this sort of disappearance uh, in investigation and all of that and, and how these people would be reacting, how that would go. Um, and I think there are reasons for that that I'll, you know, say I'll table for now. But on the whole, I think this movie is is honestly incredible. Um, and I think that it's in, 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 incredibly thrilling um, and suspenseful throughout the the entire time. You know, even though I, I, I that's an that's an interesting point that you make, Scott, that, yeah, you, I mean, you figure out sort of what happened um, halfway through. But I think just watching the, you know, button pushing going on between the two of these. And now this time sort of appreciating, at least for me, the commentary that is going on um, once we get this reveal about who Amy really is. Um, I mean, that that definitely gets me through to the finish. And I think the movie does take several twists and turns. There's one one that I'm I'm, you know, not the biggest fan of and maybe keeps this from being like a perfect top tier, amazing, incredible film. Um, But other than that, uh, I I think this movie is about as good as it gets for um, you know, c- contemporary thrillers, mystery films. Um, and, you know, David Fincher is a huge reason why. I think he takes a novel that is kind of like very lurid and, um, you know, you could even use the word trashy, I think. Uh, and he turns it into like a prestige Oscar, wor- you know, worthy film um, with great actors. Uh, like I-, I put this in my letterbox review, but I think this has the best supporting cast of any David Fincher film. Um, and it just it feels like something high class, even though even if at the end you question maybe whether it really was. Um, and that is because I think it's so well made by Fincher. And again, I think he was just like with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think he was the perfect choice to direct this film. And I think, geez, if it were up to me, I would have him directing every single adaptation again of one of these Reese Witherspoon, uh, you know, thriller of the month novels, like because there's going to they're going to keep coming out. They're going to keep making these things into movies. And um I don't think you could do much better as a director for these things with uh, than David Fincher, as he has proven now with with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to some extent, but especially with this film, um, I think it is is a really really great piece of work. Um, Yeah, I mean he's a he's a writer's director, right? Like if you're a writer and you think you have something good and interesting and compelling that you want to put on the screen, why? I mean, why wouldn't you want David? Why wouldn't David Fincher? I mean. Maybe I guess you could argue maybe Sam Mendes, but like David David Fincher, like why wouldn't David Fincher be the first person you go to? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I mean e- exactly, and I think um, that shows again with the fact that these you know two authors were willing to entrust you know this very very famous work in in his hands. Um, Steve Larson's a bit different, a bit of a different case there, but yeah, I, well, I yeah, but he he didn't write the film, but yeah, you you, you know what I mean, but um, well, but, I you know, like he's de- he, he's dead, but yeah, keep going. Yes, yes. Uh, but in the case of, of Gillian Flynn, um, you know, she she entrusted um, David Fincher to make this film and it's easy to see why. And I think probably got the end product that she wanted here. But um, guys, let's get into the cast of this film. Obviously, it's pretty star studded. Uh, and at the top of the bill, you have Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Uh, Rosamund Pike garnered a Oscar nomination for this film, the only Oscar nomination for the movie. And uh, of course, this is the Second straight film where a uh, second straight venture film that has had a best actress nominee. Um, what did you think of the two performances here? Um, 
by, you know, Ben Affleck, certified movie star. Rosamund Pike, who, who this was really was her breakthrough performance. She hasn't necessarily done anything on this level even since then. Um, but what did you think about uh, their performances as Nick and Amy Dunn? Scott, we'll start with you. Sure. I think Ben Affleck is at his best. I'll, I'll be honest. I think this is some of his best work. He's really compelling uh, as this character of Nick Dunn, who has this pristine sort of outer superficial image where something doesn't quite feel right. And there's a, a dirtiness underneath the character, right? That's not evil, or at least it doesn't seem that way, but just like a guy who's struggling with like whatever his issues are. And he's got serious issues. Like again, n- nothing that would be, that would categorize as like evil or anything, you know, like a, you know, like one of these villains in some of these other venture movies. Right. But something that, he has to like wrestle with. He has inner demons. Maybe is the best way to put it. And I think that Ben Affleck as an actor, I think some of his best performances are movies in which he has to wrestle with some inner demons. And I think that this is, this plays into that um, sweet spot for him. I think you think about, you know, a movie from earlier this year, uh, the way back, the way back, right. The basketball film he did earlier this year. Uh, I think that's like another example of Ben Affleck at his best when he has to be a person or play a character who's wrestling with their inner demons. And I, I don't think he does that there. And, Frankly, the material here is, here is that context with an equally, if not more, compelling character behind it beyond just the inner demons that he's playing out on screen. And so I think he's at his best. Rosamund Pike, right? Like absolutely enthralling performance from her. Uh, look, it's this 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 performance for me doesn't isn't gonna win. Uh, like wouldn't wouldn't win any awards in my book. But that's not Rosamund Pike's fault, right? Like there's something else going on there that holds the character back. That. Um, you have like I have to separate from the performance, but also ultimately affects my view of the performance as well. And but I think she look, she does something really special, I think. And the two sides of her character in the film, right? The we'll call it like the first act character and the second and third act characters shows a pretty wide range uh for an actress who I don't want to say that she was like unknown before this, right? But who hadn't broken out on certainly on this scale at this point to to what you were saying earlier, Scott. And Look, job well done. It's, it's two great lead performances in my book. Jay, do you agree? Yeah, and I, mean, I think Scott said it really well. Um, you know, I certainly being the, the least experienced, you know, in film viewing and Oscar culture in this chat, I still, you know, definitely feel like I can at least say I could totally see why Pike received the Oscar nom. You know, fantastic performance, shows a lot of range. And Ben Affleck, you know, similarly, I think, and I say this with like, you know, love and respect, but like, you know, Ben Affleck playing like, you know, a guy who's maybe like too good looking for, or too like charming for his own good. Like, you know, it, it feels like it works. Um, again, not, nothing but love. You know, I've, uh, I don't, I, I would have to think really hard to like, you know, think of a role of which of his that I like didn't really like with the exception of maybe the Daredevil movie, which wasn't really his fault. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he brings it, I think, you know, like Scott said, you know, the, the idea of a, of a Ben Affleck kind of wrestling with his demons on stage, you know, that's, or on screen rather, that's, that's peak Ben Affleck. And yeah, I thought, you know, both, both leading stars brought it. Yeah, I, I think with Ben Affleck, like he is charismatic, right? And that is necessary for the performance, I think, because so much of the story is actually told from Nick's perspective, which I think is, ends up being important. Um, but Um, but also there is an element, there's a note that he hits in his performance that I think is so perfect where it's like, 
you can't, you, you know, you can't trust a thing this guy says, even like from the beginning of the film, he just has that, like, there's an insincerity about everything he does, even though he's like, yeah, again, he is charismatic. He's, you know, he, you, you, you want to believe at, at least in the first, you know, hour or so of the film that he didn't do anything. He's not involved. And he isn't involved, but uh, he's involved with a lot of other very bad things. But um, but I, I think that he hits that. Like I said, he hits a perfect note in his performance uh, to make us question him from the very beginning, even while still, um, you know, uh, rooting for him and and trying to sympathize with his character a little bit. But I, I think it makes it more uh, believable when they when we peel back the layers a little bit and we see that like, oh, he's not this like idyllic guy or whatever. Like, you know, we find out he's having an affair um, with one of his students. Um, and that makes it more believable. Right. Because, again, because even though we kind of like him, he's ha he has he does have this insincerity throughout. Um, and it's like, well, OK, it looks like, uh, you know, my worst uh, thoughts about this guy are actually true. Um, and then with Rosamund Pike, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it is really a, uh, there, there are really sort of two performances that she's giving here because you have, you know, the, the cool girl, Amy, that you have in the, in sort of the first part of the film, uh, that when they're, you know, just getting together, you, you know, you find out how they, uh, form their relationship. They're married for five years. Um, and then you have the complete opposite of that. Um, and you have this psychopathic, um, you know, murderer um and and person who creates this absolutely absurd um you know scheme to frame her husband for um her murder um and you know almost ends up getting away with it um well that does get away with it but it doesn't it, it necessarily have the intended result that she planned at the beginning but um and i think she hits both uh notes perfectly um i i think i again very believable in well okay she is believable in the cool the cool girl amy is like believable you can tell that she's putting on a front a little bit um and again i think that this character in the second half is so uh unbelievable by design by intention um but i i think she hits uh the note of like this is because this is uh, the point I want to make is basically that this type of person is a myth that is often created um, by men, the media, whoever. Um, and I think she nails exactly what that, uh, you know, mythical character is like with her performance uh, of this, like, you know, psychopathic, um, you know, woman who would go to any lengths to, you know, entrap her husband and, um, some scheme. Uh, so I, I think that like, uh, that works, like, e even though it's, it's not believable, so to speak, like I said, it's not meant to be. Um, and I think, uh, she hits, you know, both notes of the performance really well. And it's difficult, right? It's really difficult to play, to do a movie where you're, you have to do two different performances. You have to shift completely who you are really in the second half of the film. I mean, one of my favorite performances, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive does basically the exact same thing. Um, no spoilers. Go watch the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think they're both fantastic here. But the supporting cast, um, and I've said it already, I think this is the best supporting cast in any Fincher film. Uh, and I want to get y'all's thoughts on it. Um, you know, to, to run down some of the names, obviously you have um, Kim Dickens, who I mentioned as Detective Boney, Patrick Fugit, 
Fugit from Almost Famous plays the other officer. Uh, Carrie Coon is Margot, who is Nick's sister. Tyler Perry is Tanner Bolt, who's the attorney. And then there's just like a lot of recognizable faces, even down to like Scoop McNary, who, who just has like one scene in the film. But um, who stood out for you guys from this, you know, decorated, um, you know, s- supporting cast full, full of recognizable faces and names? Uh, Scott, we'll go to you. Sure. You're doing Neil Patrick Harris dirty for not mentioning his name. And, yeah, well, that's my least favorite part of the movie, but that's kind of why I didn't. Oh, cool. Yeah, we have we have we share that in common about this film, then, because I didn't like what he was doing much <laughs> at all. But uh, look, no, Tyler Perry and Carrie Coon for me are the two are the two standouts. I mean, Tyler Perry, take your role seriously, man, because when you do it, you do it well. It's yeah. so good. As this lawyer, I absolutely love this character. I think he's fantastic. And Carrie Coon wins me from beginning to end of this film. Like that opening scene with, with I guess it's not technically the opening scene, but like the second scene in the film where he's at, where Ben Affleck's character is at the bar and he's playing yeah. the game of life with his sister and they're having this conversation who's Carrie Coon's character. And uh, they have this conversation. I mean, from the minute that conversation starts, she wins me over from beginning to end. And I, I just want to see her in more stuff. I feel like I haven't actually watched her in that many things, although I feel like she has like a lot of stuff coming up. I mean, she was in Widows. Um, which Jillian Flynn also wrote. Barely, which is, but yeah. Yeah, barely, I know. But that's like the only thing I can even think of, even like barely. Um, although I guess she's in the Avengers movies, technically. I don't, bad barely. Can't well, she's in my second favorite show of all time, and she's like the best part of that show. But right, um, that, that's why I'm a fan of her. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that show. Uh, I know she's a main role in one of the Fargo seasons. I need to watch And that. The Center also. One, well, I believe one season of The Center, she is like the main character in that. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, look, she's in a lot, she's in a lot of TV stuff that I haven't watched yeah. that I, that I want to watch, but I know she also has like some stuff coming up as well. Like she's, she was supposed to be in the ghostbusters movie that came out that didn't come out this year. It's going to come out next mm-hmm. year. So I'm intrigued to see what she has to do in the future. Um, I don't think she's had any like standout roles really besides in film besides this one to me, but I really love what she's doing as, as Nick's sister. I think she really strikes the balance of, you know, as a sibling supporting your brother through this event that is, you know, she believes him. She believes that he doesn't have anything to do with what's going on, but he's still a troubled person with, with demons who has lied to her. And she shows very understandable frustration and anger towards all of this. And I think that the role is just so believable and, and wins me over, like I said, from the beginning all the way to the end. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. Yeah, for me, uh, Tyler Perry, Scott, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said it because I, th- I feel like he deserves a lot of props. I mean, he is so like charismatic and fun as this like, you probably want to punch this guy in the face if he was real type of lawyer. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, honestly, like I, I definitely found him uh, one of the more enjoyable parts of the movie um, to shout out another, uh, another name that wasn't dropped. And I mean, I can understand why it was, you know, definitely there are a lot of names and whatnot, but Lola Kirk as this like trashy yeah. person, uh, Greta, I think was her name, you know, uh, who Amy, you know, kind of, friends and then is you know ultimately betrayed by like you know that uh that scene where she and her i guess like boyfriend i don't know uh and yeah lola kirk's character ends up robbing uh amy and you know says you know like you know there are you know a lot of, like worse people out there you know and like just that that whole scene was like oh crap you know like you almost you almost feel bad for amy but not and, and again like the, the fact that you know even though like amy might be like a, a terrible per by all accounts, seemingly be like a terrible person uh, again, like this. Yeah. Um, you know, and then is still getting like screwed over by like Lola Kirk, you know, so convincingly, like I, I you know, I, I enjoyed that. 
Yeah, um, for me, it's Kim Dickens. I think she, sh- I don't know where her Oscar nomination was for this movie, but um, she should have gotten it because she's fantastic, I think, as this detective. And this, you know, this is not, this is kind of a thankless role, right? This is the, this type of character, this detective character shows up in every one of these, you know, thrillers. Um, but there's something about like the way, the like blue collar approach that she brings to like this you know, very sort of like suburban, like even upper class, because like obviously Amy comes from a very wealthy background. It becomes this whole media circus thing. It's it's clear that she's not like used to, as a cop, she's not used, she's just a local cop. She's not used to this type of like attention. She's not used to dealing with people like Nick and Amy. Um, and the result of that is like, she just cuts right through all of the BS, like at the heart of, uh, you know, uh, what's going on. She like, she, she has a knack for getting right to like the heart of what's going on. Um, that I think makes her like the most likable character in the film for me by far. Like um, I think more than anything uh, involving Nick and Amy, I wanted her to solve this mystery um, and uh, you know, right off into the sunset, whatever. But um, I, I think it's a fantastic performance by her and again, in a role that um, is a thankless role. And, and these characters aren't always given room to make an impact in this type of movie. And I think she definitely does, but I echo exactly what you guys are saying about other people as well. Carrie Coon, you know, again, I think she's the best part of the leftovers and leftovers is, a, you know, top five show of all time for me. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's saying a lot. And I think, yeah, again, she's, she's a no BS character, right? Like she is just like, she, she is at her wits end trying to help her brother. And when he, he's doing so much to like, not only not help himself, but hurt himself. Uh, and like, she, you know, she can't, uh, she can't stop it from happening. And there's understandable frustration there. Tyler Perry, as you all said, as like one of the lawyers for marriage story, basically he's like, he's totally sleazy. He's like a, you know, TV lawyer. And uh, I think he, he owns that role very well. Uh, he's, you know, hired gun that you pay a million dollar retainer to or whatever, um, you know, big, like uh, Robert Shapiro type entertainment lawyer. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, again, it's, it's a supporting cast. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Lola Kirk J because She's someone who pops up. She's had a couple leading roles that I, I'm a fan of, but she pops up in a, in a lot of supporting roles, and I always think she makes a strong impact. And even here, as you said, she probably has five minutes of screen time. And I think it's a great, great performance. You know, it, it makes an impact um, with, again, this character who, I guess there's a trend here in the characters that I like in the film, but um, she, like, she she is pitched as, like, this, like, you know, white trash, trailer trash, like, doesn't know uh, you know her whatever from a hole in the ground um, and uh, and but she sees right through Amy right like she she sees through Amy's disguise she realizes that Amy is not who she says she is you know steals the money all of that she turns out to be a much more um, uh, she but a much more intelligent and uh, savvy yeah savvy takes initiative character than she is initially made out to be so I like that I think that's a nice twist on this character a nice twist on like Amy being, you know, this person from a wealthy background. She's, she's playing the part of like being like this, you know, dumpy trailer trash um, type of person. Um, and she thinks she can fool these people so easily and she can't. And so I, I like that uh, sort of like cutting through that elitism. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a nice touch, but um, yeah, that's, I, again, I think all of the supporting roles are, are great. Neil Patrick Harris, it's not anything about his performance. Like I think he plays the the role that he's asked to play fine. It's just the you know turn that the movie takes. Like this this segment of the movie to me is a little like 
almost MacGuffin-y in that like it's I can like see the strings of like that we inserted this thing here so that we can get from point A to point B like it, it's kind of a shoehorned in little subplot uh, for her to like go to his um, house I think um, really and, and that's that's why it's the only yeah that's why it's the only like um, part that doesn't really work for me right because she she gets away from the trailer park and it's like where does she go she has like this chance encounter with him right and i mean no, she seeks him out she seeks yeah, him out it's not a chance encounter uh, yeah she seeks him out but um but the, yeah but then there's this whole it, it seems like basically it's getting from hey we have to get her back together with nick right um and like the the way to do that is to like get her to go to his house and see the interview and then but then she has to get away from him i don't know it just like I, again it's not a huge complaint because i love the movie but um it feels a little like uh you know, this is something that was inserted uh, as a device so that we can get from point A to point B. Like it, putting this character in there, having her go off with this character um, is just really a vehicle to get us back to Nick. OK, I, I think I, I read it a little bit differently, but tomato, tomato. Well, well, I mean, say what say what you think. Like, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think she she had no intention of like. I mean, really, she was just going to go on the road and then eventually commit suicide, right? That's what the ultimate goal was, was like after he was convicted, but before he was put to death, she's going to commit suicide and like throw herself into the lake and have her body discovered to make sure he gets the death penalty. But rather, but that gets kind of nixed because of the scene you're talking about here where she kind of gets um, robbed, not kind of, she gets robbed by Lola Kirk's character and her boyfriend at the trailer yard. And then she realized she doesn't have any money. Like she has nowhere to go. She has to go somewhere and she has this rich ex-boyfriend who is obsessed with her. And so it goes to him still thinking about, you know, basically doing carrying through with like her, all, all her plans that she'd laid out. And then when she sees this, so it's like not a intermediary step between step A and step B. It's like necessary for the plot to continue. And then when she watches this interview and she sees, I mean, I guess to use her word, I think it's her words, but like when she sees, you know, Nick putting on the performance of being, the boyfriend husband that she, she always wanted, be, yeah. wanted him to put that performance on right she's like oh you know what i'll give him a second chance right and then devises the scheme to use neil patrick harris's character and that whole situation as a vehicle to get herself back like, there's agency involved it didn't feel like a MacGuffin to me it felt like one thing led to another and then the then her motives shifted in that and then she worked away out of that to get back into that situation but yeah. I mean, I know what you're saying. Like, there is a logical, I think, chain of events that happens. But I don't know. It feels a little forced for me. Like, it it, it is my my least favorite part of the movie. Sure. Um, I mean, you know how I feel. I've been perfectly fine if they've completely erased this part of the movie from yeah from it. Just because I think, and what we're going to get into in just a sec, but like the the overall commentary that I think the movie is going for is not really like hurt or helped. It's not really served in any way by like this section of the movie, but. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on now to, uh, to the plot or to some, some of the more detailed stuff in this movie. Um, now that we've, we've talked about the cast, um, and let's talk about the book or I'll, I'll talk about the book just really quickly and why I think the movie is more successful than the book. And I've already kind of alluded to it. I think that the book, you know, kind of just is a little bit like of a trashy beach read to me. And I think there's just something about the way that Fincher dresses it up, gives, gives it this prestige feel, um, makes it uh classier than it probably should be um because i mean like look the freaking when she kills neil patrick harris i mean that's like straight out of a you know 
vampire movie from the 70s or something like the the schlocky blood and all of that stuff and like you know it's it, it feels like it's like a brian de palma film if like brian de palma was like a you know a high class like prestige filmmaker again uh th this feels like one of those movies like body double or femme fatale or whatever that brian de palma made that were just kind of like it, it feels almost very 90s at times right because there were so many of these types of movies dur during the 90s like all of them starring Michael Douglas. Yeah, I was gonna um, say, ba base, this is basically Basic Instinct, right? <laughs> yeah, well, Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, yeah. Dis Disclosure, A Perfect Murder, again, all, all of which star Michael Douglas. Yeah, um, either Michael Douglas or Sharon Stone. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, basically. Um, and so it feels like a throwback to that. But then uh, again, it is like, he classes up the joint more. And I think, again, adds layers probably with his direction that, um, that, you know, maybe weren't even there in the novel or again, it's kind of like what we talked about with social network, right? Where Fincher probably like did a good job reining in Sorkin with his script, right? And like controlling some of Sorkin's maybe less uh, successful impulses. And I think he probably does the same with with Flynn here um, to me. And, and maybe that's why the, the movie comes off better. I also think like when I'm reading the book, it's like, I, I just hate these people. But when I see the movie, like when I see like the, the like, charismatic actors like when i see ben affleck in this role um and i see rosamund pike in this role uh you know as nick and amy i'm like okay like i get it i get it how you could be like seduced by these characters and at least interested in their fate somewhat whereas in in the book i was just like these people are miserable i kind of want this to be over with um so so that's where i think this is one of the rare examples where like the movie is better than the book and i think a lot of that is owed to david fincher um to my points but Let's talk about the structure of the story really briefly, right? Because, you know, you talk about how the movie is kind of split into two halves, or at least your your emotions about the film is, are split into two halves. And maybe some of that is, is based on the way the story is told, right? Because the movie starts off and, um, and it's being told, right, through these diary entries that Amy has. We're tracing back sort of through how their relationship first came about. And there's also the beginnings of her disappearance of the investigation of all that were kind of like cutting back and forth between those two things. Um, and then, you know, as the, the layers start to be peeled back, right. As the cracks start to reveal themselves in the marriage and in the narrative that Amy is telling, um, we get to like this turning point in the story where we find out exactly what's going on. Right. Which is that Amy um, has engineered this whole thing um, with her, you know, ridiculous scheme again. Um, and there's this whole monologue she has about basically how she pulled off the whole thing um, and, you know, sort of revealing herself for who she is. Uh, again, who her, this this sort of mythical character, um, in my opinion. But um, and, and I think that um, there the movie, you know, switches a little bit to a more straightforward, linear um, and again, mostly being told through Nick's perspective. Right. Like, the, yes, there are scenes of like Amy. Obviously, she goes to Neil Patrick Harris's house. Um, she, um, is at the trailer park for a little bit, but, um, you know, she, m most of this is framed through Nick's perspective. Um, you know, even when they get back together at the end, but what did you guys think about this way of, of structuring the story, right? Like of sort of having this past versus present thing going on for the first half and then, you know, kind of, uh, bleeding those into the same point. And from that point on, you know, having the reveal of who Amy is and, sort of telling a linear story from there on out. Did it did it work more or less for you? Jay, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, the structure itself, like, you know, I think worked fine. And, you know, I, 
again, before we get to the big reveal, I'm very much like intrigued by like, you know, the dual, like, you know, presentation of the marriage, right? Because, you know, Ben Affleck right from the get-go, like in the scene in the bar with his sister, you know, clearly like not that pleased about this whole thing. And then we start with these diary entries and show this, you know, like this very charismatic couple who, you know, both seem like, you know, both clearly like have their own like shit, but find each other and kind of like laugh their way through life together. Like I, I thought that part of it, you know, worked fine. It, it wasn't, you know, so much the structure that necessarily bothered me, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, Amy's like portrayal and whatnot and like what that might like symbolize or mean or whatnot. But and in terms of like, you know, narrative structure, I, I thought it actually worked pretty well. Um, you know, it, it very much added to kind of like Scott said, you know, you're, you're being painted this very rosy picture of this like marriage. And it's like, you, you should be feeling very uneasy right now. Um, and I, I definitely was. And again, that, that's kind of what added to, you know, the suspense, the thrill of the first half of the film. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I talked a little bit about this earlier on in my general impressions of, of the movie, but the, the structure itself, like on paper, I think it works like a charm, right? Like it's a pretty long movie. It's going to be hard to sustain the same, I guess, dimensionality of how it's building suspense and doing things in the first 60 to 70 minutes of the movie. And I think it works well to, sh to shake it up a little bit and change the perspective Add a twist early on in the film that still has you engaged and enthralled, but now the story's kind of going a different direction and you kind of have to follow it and it keeps you interested. It doesn't, it doesn't lose its pacing at all. Right. I think it's, I think it's good for that reason and it benefits in that way. And it allows you to have a sort of release of tension, right. With the reveal that's happened and then appreciate and realize that, okay, now we're going to start building tension in a different direction. Cause you kind of know everything that's happened for the previous 60 to 70 minutes now but there's more to come and you know that there's going to be more to come um, for all these various reasons. And so the structure of on paper, like I said, works really well. It so happens that I enjoy the way that it builds tension in the story that it's telling in the first half of the film more than I enjoy what ultimately happens in the second film. And I, and yes, again, a large part of this thing is this thing we're alluding to that we haven't talked about yet, but I also just do think that the movie for me and, and what I'm looking for and what I enjoy most in films that mystery element that I think it loses in the second half is much more compelling to me in the first half, but overall structure definitely works. Yeah. I, I think it works. Cause like you're seeing in the first half, you're seeing like what is actually with, with the disappearance, you're seeing what is actually happening, what is actually happening to, um, to Ben Affleck's character, you know, the start of the investigation, but then with these diary entries, like, the very nature of these with like a lot of voiceover from Amy, you know, you see literally her writing the words in the diary, stuff like that. There's like an artificial element just about that. Like, you know, it is something that is being created in, in a way like that. Th this is something that she is writing in her diary. This is not necessarily um, the actual events that we are seeing playing out that um, that I think, you know, keeps you on guard from the beginning, just as Ben Affleck, you know, and Nick and his insincerity keeps you on guard from the beginning. Um, and then I think when you're, you know, the layers get peeled back, you hear Amy's real voice or whatever. Um, again, because there is such a, I, I mean, keep coming back to this, but I, because I see this as a film about myth making, um, I think having this whole thing with Amy creating, uh, you know, a story through her diary entries, um, and through her voiceover narration, um, is important to what the film is getting at. Um, but why don't we just get into it now? Um, Let's let's just get to the elephant in the room. Um, let's talk I, about myths. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that 
Well, I do want to talk about that because that's my take on it. But uh, so kind of what we're dancing around and I think where a lot of Scott and maybe also Jay's perspective comes from um, is maybe sort of the treatment of Amy uh, down the stretch of the movie um, and some of the actions that she takes, in particular, the false rape allegations that she makes against multiple people, right? Because she, yeah. yeah, she made it against Scoot McNary. She does it to uh, Neil Patrick Harris at the end. Um, she literally, you know, fakes the whole thing on CCTV, whatever. Um, and I'll just go ahead and say that I think to, to feed into what I've been talking about, I see this movie now as this whole once we switch over to Amy's perspective and Amy, you know, we find out about her plan and everything. This plan is so ridiculous, so absurd, right? Like this, the links that she goes to, right? Like she steals the urine from her neighbor. She like you know, drains the blood out of her, is smearing it out all over the floor. Like, I mean, just absurd images, honestly. Um, to me, I think the film is kind of almost critiquing um, the way that the media and that men may, maybe look at uh, wh when they accuse women of, you know, maybe making false rape allegations, which, uh, I, I mean, that that is a myth in and of itself, right? Uh, not Not to say that, like, it never happens, but that it happens far less often that then people think it happens. Um, and like the statistics show that and everything. Um, but it is kind of like almost taking it as, as gospel. It's like, okay, let's say that these things actually do happen, right? Let's say that we believe everything that this guy is saying about who this woman really is, why she's making these allegations in the first place. And that is what, that is, that is Amy in the second half of this film, right? Like to believe that perspective, to believe like what the media uh, is, you know, maybe making this person out to be, again, we see it starts happening to Nick, right? Because they're like taking these photos. They're like, he hasn't visited his father in so, so much time or whatever. They're, they're kind of focusing on these irrelevant things to sort of assassinate their character. Just as I think like victim, th this happens to, to, to victims of like, you know, female victims of violent crimes, whatever, who, um, who make allegations towards their accuser. I think they, it is often the victims who get the spotlight turned on them and their entire background ends up being um, being, you know, inspected when it shouldn't be. But um, the point is, I think that uh, Amy is kind of like the creation of uh, every media figure, every, you know, male who is claiming that someone is making false allegations or even at the, at the very least. Right. Like this is like when my wife, when my partner, whoever, is no longer the cool girl, is no longer the person I want her to be. This is who I am going to, you know, pretend that she is, right? Like this psychopathic, like there's even the scene, right? That uh, when he's playing the video games, right? And they have this conversation and she's like, don't do that. Like, don't make me into like that person, the nagging shrew, whatever. I'm not that person. You know, I'm not that person. Um, and the movie, I think in the second half kind of pauses. Well, what if she was this person? And what we see, I think, because of how absurd the plot gets is that this doesn't happen, right? This would never happen. Um, and to believe these stories that, you know, the media is creating, that men are creating, um, you would have to believe the most ridiculous things about this person, that they would, you know, steal someone's urine, that they would drain their blood, smear it all over the floor um, and go to such ridiculous links um, that it really just sort of destroys the credibility, I think, of of the person making these claims. And there's other things there. I have other opinions about is sort of how the movie ends up. Right. Cause I, I think um, it ends up with this, like the worst possible ending for Nick. Right. 
which is not that somebody goes to jail or he goes to jail, she goes to jail, whatever, but that they are trapped in a marriage with each other. And he has to basically live with her, um, live with like this person that he created um, on a daily basis. And so I find that fascinating just because I think it's a, it's a constant element throughout the movie. Again, you have the narrative that the media creates, you have, you know, how they paint Nick out to be first as the bad guy, then later as the good guy. Um, and then you have the whole amazing Amy thing, right? Which I see like the end of the movie, right? When Amy, um, gets back together with Nick, she makes up these allegations and like is seen as sort of a, a hero for escaping all of this. Um, she becomes amazing Amy, right? Which is not this attainable thing. Uh, again, kind of going along with what I'm saying, um, the only way that she can become this unattainable, amazing Amy figure is to become this person who isn't actually a real person who would never actually go to these links. Um, I don't know if what I'm saying makes any coherent sense at all, but um, maybe not judging by your all's puzzled expressions. But um, that's those are kind of my thoughts, but I want to get y'all's takes as well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if puzzled is the word I'd use to describe how I'm feeling. I mean, I, I certainly feel like your your take on it is not one I'd considered, but not one that I'm dismissing out of hand, or even one that I'm like thinking about. Like, I, I everything you said makes some amount of sense to me. I, I think what you said specifically about how you know they, you know, Ben Affleck's character kind of gets assassinated. Uh, you know, by seemingly irrelevant things, like the fact that he hadn't visited his father, like that's, I, I guess like a, an interesting, like flipping of the script. Um, and one that I, you know, hadn't given too much credit to, if anything, maybe I like focused, you know, just on the fact that like, you know, it like kind of what you're saying where like everything kind of has been flipped. Like I, I almost feel like maybe I, I came at it in the sense of like, this isn't how it happens at all, rather than like acknowledging that this might have like this is like an intentional flip, you know what I mean? Like you think about the fact that, you know, when a character, like like you're like you said, you know, the victim in this case usually is the one who, you know, has their character assailed for sometimes seemingly unrelated reasons, and for I mean, sometimes for more seemingly unrelated reasons. In this case, like you know, I, I imagine something like the fact that she kept letters from uh, this ex, right, as like a potential detail that could come up at some point and be like a problem or, you know, like a hole in the story, like, you know, like, well, like, why did she keep his letters or, you know, whatnot? Like, I don't, I don't know, you know, but I, Scott Sheldon, I kind of want to lateral over to you because I'm, I'm kind of digesting Scott Harvey's claim here, but. Well, yeah, if, if I can jump in there really quick, like, I think it is both a flipping of the script intentionally. And it is also saying, Hey, this doesn't happen. Right. Because it happens, but it doesn't happen to men. Right. It doesn't happen to uh, somebody like Ben Affleck. It happens to, the female who is the actual victim, but in his invented myth, right? Where, Hey, uh, I didn't do anything. Actually, the woman is just this insanely crazy person who did all of this stuff that no, again, no one would ever do. Um, I am the victim. And it's, it, again, it's kind of taking these myths at face value and showing sort of how absurd they are in a way, but it also flips the script in the end, I think in a nice, like ironic way, because, he is the one who ends up being forced to stay in the relationship because she is pregnant, right? And whereas a lot of times in that situation, maybe it's the other way around, right? If if there's a marriage or a relationship and a male like assaults, sexually assaults the, the female and she ends up getting pregnant, right? Like that is a situation where she is like, I have to stay in the relationship or whatever um, because I have this child now that I need, I need, I have to protect. Um, and 
Um, and so I think, again, it's a nice flipping of the script because he is the one who ends up being forced to stay in the relationship um, because she and she has all the power now as like the one who is is pregnant. I mean, that, that feels a little bit reductionist uh, to the, the, the real life example, but I, I guess I see the point you're making. You don't imagine the man as the victim. You imagine the woman as the victim because that's usually how it happens. Right. I, I, I guess. Uh, Scott, Scott. save me here. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to save you, but what I will say is that I think the points you're making, Scott, like feel separate to me is what I'm going to say. It's like you're talking about this narrative that, that flips the script, it creates etc. And it feels like a, a different point then that's separate about this whole idea that you're talking about, like, oh, like he flips the script in this way, yada, like, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then like, it's really just trying to make this commentary about how like women are portrayed in this way. And I just I just disagree that the, that the film does that effectively at sure. all, because I think because I think that it, it's so wrapped up in I, I totally buy what you're saying around this whole idea of like myth making. And that like, oh, like, this is an absurdist comedy. I mean, like this the more I think about this film, like it just feels like a better executed fight club. And like, it's absurdist. Like, Oh, look how absolutely ridiculous these characters are. Of course you couldn't think this real. Well, the bad news is, is that people think that it's real <laughs> and like people, people look at it and analyze and don't analyze it. Right. They like, don't, don't engage with it critically or conceptually or at a level that, that you're engaging with that. And they take it for face value. I mean, like there's a reason why fight club is a cult classic and it's because people take it more on face value than, uh, than analyze it more deeply. At least that's my opinion now, having rewatched it a couple of times. But again, not a couple of times. I've rewatched it once. But I, I think that this movie is, is trying to. I totally buy what you're saying. Like Fincher's, like, oh, I'm trying to take the second half and make this this absurdist comedy do these things, these like outrageous things, or right? these seemingly unbelievable things. But I just don't think that the movie does a good enough job making it clear that it's like outrageous and absurdist. Like obviously, you, the three of us, can sit here and talk about like it's clearly absurdist. But I don't think that 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 is like the popular commentary around this film, right? Like, like, like the first thing that you look up when you see this film isn't like, oh, look how absolutely absurd all of these things that happened are. It's like, wow, what a compelling mystery psychological thriller, right? Like, it, it's this idea of like it, intention versus impact, maybe, right? I don't know. Like, I don't know a better way to put it. But I, I feel like there's this intention to do some of the things that you're saying here, I, I don't want to go 100% all the way because I'll just be honest, like I didn't 100% follow everything you were saying, but a lot of it made sense. Um, but I just don't think that the impact is there. And I mean, I've watched it twice now. Uh, I know you, I think you've watched it more than that, but like I, I just don't get that impact anytime that I watch it. And I try to go in every time with a little bit like with an open mind about approaching the second half of the film. And the second half of the film is definitely absurd, but not so absurd that I think that people would automatically be like, Wow, what a what a really brilliant commentary on how false allegations aren't real. Like I just I just like I don't think that it's a reasonable takeaway from the film. Yeah, but and I I know what you're saying, but I also think like if your takeaway from the film is is this was a really great mystery thriller, I think that's a perfectly fine takeaway, right? Like you can appreciate the film as just a pure genre exercise. The only problem, right, is if you are, you know, taking this at face value and saying, "Oh yeah, this could actually have happened in the real world." Um like but, but know, people like, don't but just people don't think about film like that i don't think i just don't think people i don't think people engage with popular media like that in what way like, I, don't, I don't understand i don't think saying. people think about like oh this is fiction there's no way this could happen in the real like people just don't engage on that level with things that that look like if you use like uncanny valley if if you like i i think 
like I I think that people look at this and be like, wow, this per this woman is crazy. Like, can you believe she did all of these things and she's getting away with it? But like people don't then engage at a, at a layer deeper. I just don't. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't think people that, engage at a layer deeper that says, oh, this could never happen. Yeah, but but the point is, I don't think that they are looking at that. If they look at if they look at her and say, oh, this woman is crazy, I don't think that they're then saying. This person could be, you know, uh, this is just like uh, this woman in real life or like this could really happen in real life. I think they're just seeing it as a movie, right? As something artificial, as something created. Um, but, that, but that's putting, but I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that, that comment. But I think that maybe I'm overvaluing the, the connection between like un, uh, accepted norms or like under, understood normalcy and the, and the role that like popular media as a broad category plays in that like yeah. film if it, and this was a popular film and this film made almost 400 million dollars the box office like just if like regardless of what layer of of concept like you engage with this film at the, the reality is is that this film portrays a psychotic woman essentially being crazy who accuses three different people well, i guess I, I don't know if i don't know who the third person is but at least two different people here of raping her when they did not and whether or not you engage at a like just because maybe this is my psychology background getting the better of me, but like whether or not you engage with, oh, this doesn't happen or this does happen, like regardless of, of I'm leaving that aside, like no matter whether you believe this could happen in real life or not, I think that like the fact that that is now, you know, you've engaged with that in your mind, you've seen that in a place, you pointed like, oh yeah, like that's believable that that happened in real life, not, not specifically talking about this instance, but like when an instance of this comes up and someone tells you a story like, Oh, dude, like this woman, like is, who's accusing me of raping her, like she's crazy. There's no way I did it. Like it's normal. It's slightly contributed to a normalization of like that is behavior that happens, and and not engaging at a deeper level like that. And that's where I find it problematic to portray these types of scenes in this way. And why I didn't necessarily have a problem with it in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where it's not being used in that way. It's doing something very different with violence against women, and taking a very different approach to it. And that's why I have a problem with Gone Girl in the way that it portrays this ultimately, because I don't disagree with the idea that it is absurdist and like the ideas that you're saying and the, and the critical angle or lens that Fincher is taking to this and trying and trying to create this narrative. But I do think that it's irresponsible to portray these types of things in popular media and leave it there for a critical interpretation. That that's just my personal problem with it. And I don't, I know I'm not in the majority on that. Like I know the vast majority of people out there don't, don't share my belief on this, but that's just the problem that I have with it. Yeah. Well, and here's what I'll say. I mean, I haven't articulated myself well enough at all. Uh, and I wish I had like written down my thoughts or whatever so that I could have said them in a more clear fashion. But to, to respond to what you're saying, I think, first of all, uh, I totally understand what you're saying, that there are some things where, that I think just the very act of depicting them, whatever, you know, what, whatever your spin on it is like, this is almost like the cuties thing that came up right a, a few weeks ago, right? With the whole Netflix film about that depicts these like underage children, um, you know, who are being yeah. risque basically. Um, and I don't doubt, I like, I don't think that the film is glorifying that in any way, but yeah. I question whether depict like to make the point that you're trying to make, it is worth it to depict what sure. you have to depict. Right. Which is, you know, these, these kids, um, this, I just think is a different situation because again, because I, and I don't agree with you on the point that, people wouldn't necessarily see how ridiculous or absurd it is. Again, I think he goes so far to show how absurd it is to the fact that, again, I'll bring up the examples again. She's spearing blood on the floor. She's stealing the urine. She's, I mean, it's, it, it is ridiculous. The links that she has to go to. Sure. Um, and, I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. Well, and, and so I think that 
Um, Amy is not a realistic character is the point that I am trying to make. And number one, if you are taking the false rape allegations as evidence that this could actually happen, I think you made up your mind before you ever saw the movie. Um, and you are probably already somebody who believes that this would happen. Like, I don't think this is going to convince anyone that false relegation, false rape allegations happen. That, I guess that is the no, point. No, I'm and, to and I want to be really clear that, that that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying people who are on the fence about whether they think false allegations happen. I'm not going to point to Gone Girl and say, oh, I saw it in this David Fincher film. Therefore, it must be true. Uh, what I'm saying is that it adds a, a data point, in, for the lack of a better word, to people's like psychological schema around this type of thing. We're getting like way deep into like into like psychological concepts yeah. here probably. But I think it adds a data point to people's psychological schema where not even I'm not even talking about like at a conscious level. Like they're they're thinking about all the different times they've they've encountered or engaged with some sort of false allegation, whether that's in media, whether that's in real life, whatever. But like when those those situations present themselves and you have someone who comes to you and these like basically essentially says, oh, like whether it's male or female, like, oh, this person like this person raped me when it didn't happen, right? Like that, I think when you present that, like what, what Gone Girl contributes to is this narrative of like, I have seen a false allegation. I can't think of exactly where it was, but it's an, it's normalized in my mind. I don't disagree with what you're saying about being absurdist. I just think that it contributes to a narrative overall that allows people, not consciously, but like subconsciously to develop schema around, oh, like I've seen an example of this before not necessarily attributing things and look maybe i'm going too deep and and I, I think i'm losing people a little bit here probably but that's just i where... already lost people a long time ago so. <laughs> fair, fair enough but i i just think that that it is i i do think that it's irresponsible to portray false rape allegations in in films i i do think that it is and i think it, it is maybe to the point you're making about cuties I, I would agree with that comparison um i know that's not the comparison you're making but i said i would compare it to that idea right like maybe you maybe you're crossing a line just by simply portraying the act itself right maybe you are maybe you're not maybe th that's a separate debate maybe but like for me this at this act or the situation is one of those things that you've crossed the line when you've portrayed it regardless of the, like, the critical analysis that you're making with it and that's where the problem sits for me also this is also just a terrible subplot overall in the film which maybe we've detached from a little bit yeah. I, I, and i mean the only other thing i was going to say was that i think people are always going to misinterpret movies, right? Like, I, I don't think that um, because a movie is misinterpreted, yeah. that that means the movie is not successful. Like, sure. there, are there are people who just are not going to pick up with the critical comment. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, oh, like, people are just too dumb to understand this, right? Because I was the same way, right? Like, I just yeah. watched the movie. Again, this was the first time when I really, like, actually yeah. thought about what was going on. In the and movie. I think that your experience with the film is, like, probably 90% of people's experience with the film, I, yeah. right? And I think that 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 is like therein lies the issue that I'm taking that I think I'm taking that I'm that I'm having with the movie is that people aren't engaging with the film this way and explicitly thinking about how like the critical analysis that we're having here. Right. They're just they're watching it. It's going into like their memory banks and they're not going to consciously engage with it at that level anymore. And it's just there. Right. And it just sits there and it can be accessed for these other types of you know things that I've been talking about. Yeah, maybe maybe that is a false of the film. I I don't know. Again, for me, I I appreciate it as a genre exercise. Sure. You know, on on this level, I think I see it as something completely different now. But Jay, do you have anything else to add on these points? Yeah, after I rambled for twenty minutes, as Jay gathered his thoughts about illness. Yeah, my my brain was fried. I think I think where I've landed in, in terms of like you know whether or not 
this film portrays Amy as realistic or unrealistic and whether or not it makes that stance clear is ultimately, I think, I, I feel like the average moviegoer kind of would walk away from this feeling kind of like, uh, like Tyler Perry had this one line at the end where he's you know, basically like, don't piss her off. Um, and I don't know, I, I, almost, I almost feel like that's kind of the note it leaves you with. Um, not necessarily because of that line. Because, um, you know, there's, there's A, it's, it's ultimately inconsequential in the grand scheme of everything that happens. And B, I think that the, the final interactions between the two leads, you know, also kind of like nudges to that. It, it almost makes me, I feel like it kind of undermines the, what you're, what you're saying, Scott, about how like Amy's portrayed as like unrealistic. Like I, I feel like with you, if you add this element of like, you know, don't piss your partner off or don't, or, you know, just like play the part and everything will be fine. Like, I feel like then it does add or rather just, it just, it does undermine that element of like, this character is absurd and like, this would never happen. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't exactly see where you're going, but um, for me, it's just the whole, the whole murder plot and how complicated it is and everything that kind of just like seals the deal for me. And yeah. then no, I Tyler mean, Perry is just so good. He's convinced Jay that this is real life. And, <laughs> and, like even the even what I was talking about, like when she slits his throat, like that is so like grotesque and over the top. It's like I, I don't know. It seems like he goes to an effort, right, to show you like just how like ridiculous this is. But anyway, I think yeah, we've Z- made our Z- points Zodiac right did now, the but. same thing, right? How ridiculously and over the top and unreal all of those murders were. I mean, I think that's totally different, but um some pretty grotesque murders in that movie. Yeah, I guess, but it's just like the the blood that it's cascading down her. Like they are like having sex, and she like continues to while the, like she is murdering him. Like, come on, that is ridiculous. That is something out of Basic Instinct again. Like yeah. that that to me is like if 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 you don't see that, then you're just not getting it. Like, uh, well, I, I, I think I think you're a little too distracted by the very gory scene. Like to be fair, but I I don't disagree with what you're saying at the same time. Yeah, but that but that's the point. I think like that the gore is over the top and extraneous beyond what is necessary because I think he wants you to see the artifice. But anyway, yeah, I mean to be um, fair, I've never slit anyone's throat and continued to have sex with them, so I don't know how the blood falls in that situation. So maybe that was very realistic. I don't know. I guess that's true. Um, but uh, let's talk briefly about before we finish up, because we, you know, we have uh, talked for a while now, the media a- angle of it, because I again, I talked about it probably very inarticulately. Um, what I think the the media, the, the, this angle about media manipulation, and this is where Zodiac comes into play, right? Because we saw this in Zodiac as well, with the way that the media, um, you know, seizes on these true crime stories, even when they try to keep it away from you know, the news media, whatever they, they, uh, you know, they find out, they publicize the bus threat. They, the whole thing with Brian Cox as the lawyer, right. Which it it ends up drawing out all of these crazies, right. And making the case actually harder for them to solve because there's all these people who are now claiming, Oh, Hey, I'm Zodiac. Um, and, but this movie goes even further with, I think in, in talking about how the media portrays, you know, True crime stories, again, victims of violent crimes, I think. You know, we have Missy Pyle, who plays basically this Nancy, Nancy Grace. She's playing Nancy Grace. Yeah, yeah. like she she is. Um, and this really yeah, resonated I, for me at the time because Nancy Grace is still popular in 2014. Yeah. Right? Like she uh, wasn't I mean, this irrelevant was, This was when the Casey Anthony stuff happened, right? And Nancy Grace was like, so. Yeah, I think Casey Anthony was a little before that, but it was still like in the consciousness. It was, yeah, uh, it was yeah. in public consciousness. Yeah. But, um, but and so they really go far to show how like again I I guess I did kind of bring this up last time but like 
you know, how the media seizes on these little things like the selfie that like he look, Nick Dunn is not a good person, but the selfie that he takes with that woman um, like that, you know, that wasn't a, uh, a bad thing like it, that. He just got caught in an awkward moment for a second. Uh, and that should not have been used against him in the way that it was right. Like, or the, when he poses next to the picture or the missing poster, he like awkwardly smiles or whatever. That's just like somebody who doesn't know what to do in a certain situation. Um, and I think that again, that happens to victims of violent crimes. I think that so often the narrative becomes not about the thing that they are the victim of, but about, you know, looking for little holes in their story to undermine them. Like, Oh, maybe he's, they're actually a bad person because they didn't go visit their father, whatever. Um, but what did you think about this angle of the movie, Scott? Yeah, I think this is this is a critique that works really well for me as someone who uh, I I have watched Nancy Grace with, like when I was growing up. Like I don't remember if it was Casey Anthony or what it was, but like definitely in high school or something. Like I definitely watched Nancy Grace like with my mom, and we'd watch it and and like look like the, 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 this this is this is real life, right? This isn't fake. This is real stuff that happens that happened on TV. Like talk about trial outside of the courtroom, right? Like trial by media. It's the the ultimate epitome of that i i think and like definitely this character i don't even know i don't want to call it a caricature because it feels very authentic this like portrayal of nancy grace um as what's her name ellen abbott in the in the film or something like that i believe um, so yeah yeah like it it's it feels very real and it feels very appropriate to have a film and like this is the social commentary in the film that i think that works really well for me right and it's much more effective is the you know, damning of the way the media approaches this film. And it's not the first film to do it. It's not, I don't even know if it's necessarily the best film to do it, but it does it really effectively, right? It really takes them to task for the way that they uh, treat Nick and Margot and everything. And I also think that it's, uh, you know, it does a, it does a slightly lesser number on the police department, I'd say, but I don't think they're spared. Um, from the crossfire of this, or at least maybe what is actually going on here is something like, how does the media maybe affect the police department as well? Because yes, Detective Boney, um, I think she's viewed as someone who is following the leads, right? Like she gets it wrong for a good portion of the movie, but she's on the right trail at the end and she's kind of shut down by the end of it. But her partner is like very skeptical, right? Very willing to believe the news. And I think there's a, there is a, um, a line that is maybe towed with the portrayal of how the, how the media even like affects a police investigation too, as yeah. well with the, with the way her partner, um, I guess ha holds his own beliefs about the, the guilt of a certain, you know, suspect in the case. And then the other angle, right. Is that Nick ends up being interviewed on the show with Celia Ward's character. And, um, and, and, you know, that sort of, um, improves his, his reputation, his opinion, uh, his himself in, in the public eye, uh, because he, you know, pretends at least to be very sincere about um, how he felt about Amy and how sorry he is. So we get to see basically he is affected as both the victim and the aggressor in a way, right? Because this is, this is the treatment you might see to like someone who is accused of such a crime, right? Like they, they might get more of a platform and, um, and be given more of the benefit of the doubt than perhaps that they should. Um, because we know that Nick is lying, right? Like everything that he says in that like interview is basically not true. And he's just trying to improve his public image. Um, yeah. But and it the works. Part is that none of it matters in the grand scheme of the investigation. Like none of the things that's even yeah. being talked about is relevant at all. But it works. It, it, it works. Um, Briefly. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a commentary there too. 
Uh, well, yeah, it works in some sense, but it also doesn't work, right? Because it gets Amy to come back to him, which is yeah. what he didn't he screwed want. Screwed himself. Um, he should have just yeah. gone to prison and gotten a lot and gotten the death penalty. Yeah. Um, Jay, your thoughts? Yeah, this is something I think we can all agree on. I mean, the 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 portrayal of the media is kind of like an aggressor, a muckraker, like however you want to call it. Like you know the the sensationalism, the clickbait nature of you know just jumping to these conclusions and pushing these you know pretty terrible narratives. Uh, again, like you know with perhaps some justification if you know you like if you genuinely believe this person was like a murderer and you're trying to like convince the world of that, I guess. But like it's it's rarely ever that like cut and dry, right? Like it's it's very much is just about like. I mean, it's, it's sensationalism. Right. And so, you know, I, I think the media, at least from where I'm sitting is like appropriately given a not so great rap. Um, you know, just again, in the way that, you know, it, I think within five days of, uh, this murder, you know, they're already, you know, picking apart Ben Affleck's character. They're, they're like one person has already like put or peddled a like incest theory with his twin. And like, it's just, yeah, it's all this, like, I mean, just like, you know, yeah, twin test and all this just like awful, you know, awful like reporting and character assassination, like we've, you know, said repeatedly. I think, you know, I, I, I didn't think of it so much as, you know, how it might have like, how, how it was portrayed to like impede a police investigation, but just generally they're like, how quickly they like, you know, jumped on this. And within five days, it's a national story. And we're, you know, again, peddling all these theories about Ben Affleck's character and, you know, looking into his past and we've already discovered his affair, like, you know, everything, it, uh, you know, I, I think kind of is a, is a good comment on kind of how, you know, I'm just going to keep using this word sensationalistic, you know, it feels like a lot of mainstream media has become. Uh, all right, guys, I think we can wrap up now this discussion. Uh, favorite scene or moment from this film, Jay? I, I think I'll go ahead and give it to the first conversation at the bar over the game of life. Um, you know, it's a, it's not one that's like, you know, very over the top or necessarily even that like, you know, suspense or full or thrilling in a, in a movie full of moments like that. But I, I think it, it laid the groundwork well and it just, it was a fun, like, you know, fun in like a kind of a depressing way, you know, conversation, you know, between two siblings that was, you know, believable, laid the groundwork well. And I think, you know, kind of, I again, like, you know, started to show the Ben Affleck that like I came to see. Yeah, I think I have a couple to choose from probably, um, but I think all of them are from the first half when it's building the tension of the mystery itself, right? Like what's happened, right? When you're watching it for the first time, which obviously I, I wasn't doing this time, but it, it even when watching it the second time, I feel like it's still built up in the same way. And I appreciated what the film was doing and trying to put myself in the shoes of having not seen it before. And some of those scenes, I think, re work really effectively. And I think it's some towards the end of that first act where you get them finding all these clues, whether it's going back to the house and finding the diary in uh, the furnace or whatever, or Ben Affleck following all the clues and opening the woodshed right with all the presents. I think that's probably the moment that I'll, that I choose is, you know, Affleck following the clues, ending up at, you know, his sister's wood woodshed, opening the doors and seeing all these, what, 60,000 whatever dollars of credit card charges sitting in this woodshed and understanding exact like the full scope of what has happened now. Um, it maybe because he was unsure probably before he knew he didn't have anything to do with it, but he was unsure of what the scope of it was. And in that moment, the, the switch flips, right? You understand what's going on. So this is one logical question I had that I just thought about, but talking about the clues, right. That Amy leaves for him. 
like the third clue or whatever that leads him to his dad's house is about like, oh, the little brown house or something like that, right? That That's in the clue, right? But then yeah. the cops are so confused about why he goes to the house, right? Like even later in the film, they go back to the dad's house and they're like, why did he come here? I'm like, it's a do blue you house. not understand? It's, so it's not the house then in the clue. No, it is the house in the clue, but yeah. the house is the color of the house is blue. Oh, what she's I referring see, I totally to, that. Yeah. What she's referring to is something that like he and her would like call the house. I don't remember what it, they explain it briefly in the. Yeah. In yeah. The okay. Yeah. I, I missed that. Also, I still feel like they should have put it together. But anyway, um, I know he hides the clue from them, but that's all track. My, my favorite scene, or I guess it's more of a moment, but I do like a lot. I, I like a lot of the stuff towards the end of the film, but um, the scene where they are like together, uh, I like the press conference type thing. And um, they're just like going through the motions. Like he pretends to kiss her on the cheek. And then she says the line of like, the greatest tragedy is when people like stay in a or have to, you know, have to stay in a relationship with someone that they don't like or don't want to be with. Um, and that like kind of cements kind of what I, I feel the movie is about almost that the ending to this horror story that Nick has created is not that, he, you know, somebody goes to jail or even that he dies, right? It is that he has to stay in this relationship with uh, this person. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that is the only way that it could have ended, you know, in, in my opinion, to sort of cement this, you know, terrible, ridiculous myth that he has created once again. But um, yeah, that's, that's my favorite moment. Uh, let's put a score on it, Jay. Seven. To kind of wow, come that full is, circle that's like a it. three on Jay Habib's scale, but uh, Scott, it's Rise of Skywalker on Jay Habib's. Okay, scale. relax. <laughs> it's just we might as well just like in, in. I should get like some audio clip that we can just play every time Jay gives me the blow, like a seven. Be like, oh my god, it's a three. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I mean, I after that joke, I'm I'm gonna come out uh, about the, about the same for reasons, but I, I think that just to give a little commentary before I do give a score. On like my going back to my overall thoughts now that we've talked about it and, and gone into a little more detail and to compare it to another movie where I liked a lot of the film but had some problems with it uh, after a certain point is that this really feels like my interstellar for for David Fincher where it's like it is a phenomenal film up to a certain point and it just goes to a place that I don't think you can get back from um, and I think that's the trouble that I had here unfortunately that place that it goes to is earlier on in the film and it loses me for maybe a larger chunk of it because of that. But o overall, look, I think that it's a, it's an incredible 60 to 70 minutes. First half of the film. I'm not, I, I really not being hyperbolic when I say that. I think it's a really phenomenal filmmaking uh, for the very 60 to 70 minutes. And I can appreciate uh, some parts of the second act and third acts as well. Right. And I, and I don't disagree with a lot of the things that you're saying, Scott, that aren't related to obviously our, our you know, bigger disagreement maybe, but um like overall the things you're talking about myth making, I think you've convinced me that that is a part uh, of the movie. I think that's a really interesting commentary that you've laid out, but uh, just it, it, the film loses me a little bit in, in the second half, unfortunately, but I can still appreciate uh, for some of the things that it's going with. So uh, 6.8. Well, Scott, I mean, comparing it to interstellar, I think is, is a great comparison to make because they're both just simply phenomenal films. Um, and for that reason, I'm giving Gone Girl a 9.5. This is uh, definitely one of my favorites uh, in the series. Um, I think it's an incredibly well done film and uh, wish it had gotten more Oscar love because I think uh, this is a type of example where like we, we talk about getting respect for like genre movies a lot at awards uh, ceremonies. And I think that this is the type of film that you would hope would would maybe sort of make that breakthrough. Um, 
and it just didn't uh, beyond Rosamund Pike, which ended up sort of being the one talking point from the movie. But it's, you know, it's it's a movie that people still love and talk about a lot. So I can't complain too much. But uh, yeah, 9.5. I like it a lot. Um, 2014's got, as you remember, tough year at the Oscars for it, for films it was. that were good, but not necessarily all the way yeah, at the top was. of the ladder. But they still got it wrong in the end. Um, <laughs> I know Scott disagrees with me, but uh, we've had enough disagreeing for this episode. Um, this is obviously our last film in the Fincher countdown. Um, however, we are going to have. Oh, I do. One more sorry, episode. Scott. I do want to make it. I don't know if this is what you were saying earlier, but Reese Witherspoon was supposed to play the role of of Rosamund Pike uh, I, when the film was originally developed. Yeah, and Brad Pitt, I think, was supposed to play uh, Ben Affleck's role, but. Um, but no, that wasn't the point I was making. But the point I was making, right, is that Reese Witherspoon is like a champion yeah. for like all of these novels. And like she's now she like brought Big Little Lies to TV. She had Little Fires Everywhere. Like and there's like a ton of show. others that. She, yeah. Well, I mean, that, I don't think that was like the same type of thing that I'm really talking about. I'm talking about like these like thrillers that like, um, you know, are, are on the bestseller list. But there's others that are in the works. Um, but yeah, that she, is she kind of all of them, whether she stars in them or not. Yeah, that is kind of funny that she was also linked to this project. But uh, since this is the last episode, um, uh, well, so this is the last episode on which we're going to be reviewing a movie. However, we are going to have one more episode of The Countdown, which we're just going to kind of wrap things up. I want us to do some kind of like awards, maybe like favorites, uh, scenes, performances, uh, moments, stuff like that from The Countdown. Now that we've made it uh, through all the films. Um, and we will also, of course, be revealing our final ranking of the Fincher movies on that episode. So it, it won't be like the Nolan where I think we did say our rankings at the end of Dunkirk. Um, but um, and then maybe repeated them on their on the wrap up episode. But we will be saving we'll, that will be an exclusive for the uh, for the wrap up episode. So stay tuned for that episode coming uh, next week. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. However, despite me rambling like a incoherent maniac, um, if you have uh, and you'd like to support our podcast, uh, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Um, even if you can't support us over there, uh, like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things you do on our podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at, uh, I think, at media plug pods. I'm actually going to try to start updating the Twitter again. I sent out a tweet today. Um, I I really should have been doing that all along. It's just I have a lot to keep up with. But um, well, you started doing the newsletter, so you took on a little yeah. bit extra responsibility. But, su but subscribe to the newsletter as well. A uh, link will be in the description. Um, and of course, uh, check out all of our other podcasts. Some like it, Scott Champs Lunch, and uh, and join us for that last episode of the Fincher Countdown, our wrap up episode. I think this has been a great series. I'm really glad we did it. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Um, and uh, and yeah, we got one more episode to go. So. Join us for that episode, but until then, uh, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll uh, see you next time.